Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis on all the topics you're talking about in football. Eleven days left until the window closes. Still no major moves, really, in the Premier League. And, of course, only one place to start today with my transfer guru friend, Mr Duncan Castles. I'm Ian McGarry, as you know. And that is with Manchester United. A 2-0 defeat at Anfield yesterday season. 30, yes, 3-0 points adrift of their oldest rivals, most bitter rivals. And nothing happening, it seems, Duncan, in terms of progress with regards to players coming in, going out. Uh, we also have issues uh, at United with Marcus Rashford's uh, double fracture of his spine. Uh, we've got Paul Pogba, who's still out as well, as well as, um, well, Bruno Fernandes, which is becoming one of the, the greatest transfer sagas in the history of transfer sagas. Where do we begin, Duncan? Look, let's, let's talk about where Manchester United were going into the window. Everyone knew they had problems. Everyone knew they had to reinforce the midfield. Manchester United had made a decision that they were um, going to look for serious reinforcements in, in midfield. We're telling people they were prepared to put proper money down to get the right players in in this window. They've been working on a number of deals. Um, they've had a, an attempt at signing Jack Grealish, which has failed because Aston Villa will not sell um, because they need the player to uh, try and retain their Premier League position. They've looked at James Madison again. And as we've detailed in the podcast for well over a week now, they have made a formal offer for Bruno Fernandes um, and have entered into a basically a stalemate, a standoff with Sporting over the valuation of the player, which we can talk about in some uh, detail again and add some news for our, our listeners later. But they've now, following... Um, uh, FA Cup tie last week uh, in which Marcus Rashford was brought off the bench uh, when already suffering from an injury and um, we have uh, Henry Winter of the Times doing a piece after um, the game yesterday saying that Marcus Rashford had a stress factor in his back going into the match against Wolves. He was brought off the bench with a score at 0-0 with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer obviously um, extremely focused on trying to win that match. Why? because realistically it's his best chance of winning silverware in this first full season for the club. And this is a manager who needs to be able to put silverware on the table because his position is under pressure. He brings Rashford on. He almost immediately suffers an um, injury to his back. He has now been diagnosed with a double stress fracture um, and expected to be out for months. Um, uh, interesting discussion for, from uh, Robin Van Persie. Um, on Premier League television after the match, talking about his experience um, having a stress fracture in his, in his lower back when he was a, a youngster at Feyenoord, uh, and saying it took him months to recover, and he still feels uh, it's a weak point now. He's still conscious of the fact that he had a fractured back. He says he doesn't feel pain, but it's something something that you are aware of, and, and it affects you going forward. So this is a serious injury. And it's come at a time when Manchester United had those problems in midfield to solve, partly because they've lost Paul Pogba, again, to uh, an injury suffered, 
when Solskjaer decide to play him in what should have been an easy-to-win League Cup tie against Rochdale, um, which has subsequently resulted in him missing the majority of the, the season. Um, they now have an issue to solve in attack. Uh, they've lost their leading goal scorer. Um, you could say probably the one of the two most important uh, forces in their first-choice attack. You can argue whether Martial plays a more important part as a central striker, but certainly Rashford has been the one scoring more goals this season. So on top of that midfield issue, they now have to make a decision. Do we spend heavily on a centre-forward in this window, having tried and failed to sign Erling Haaland, um, having made inquiries for Moussa Dembele at Lyon, but being told... Um, clearly by the Lyon president, Jean-Michel Alas, that the, the price will be over 100 million for the France under-21 international? Or do they join the queue of clubs, um, which is present in every Premier League transfer window, trying to find a striker on loan, um, perhaps as an option to buy, to solve a short-term problem in the January window to try and achieve their goals for the season, which the most prominent of, of which is to qualify for the Champions League. If they fail to do that, it will cost them significant commercial revenue. They're currently five points behind a Chelsea side who have already lost eight matches, um, which, which gives you an indication of just how bad Manchester United's points return has been on an historical basis. And I did the calculation after the game last night, 34 points from 23 games. If they carry on... With that return for the, the rest of the 15 games, they will end up with just over 56 points, 56.2 points, I think it would work out as, which would be not only the lowest return of the Premier League uh, era, it would be the lowest return of a Manchester United side since 1989, um, which is astoundingly poor for a team who spent heavily on their defence in the window, have had... The, the manager has been given his first full season. He's been given the opportunity to change many things about the organisation of the club uh, in the football department. He's talked about how his pre-season and his training methods would have them playing better football, more attacking football, make them more robust. And yet we have a team that's beset with injuries, um, not just the kind of injuries that Pogba and um, Rashford have suffered uh, by being played in games uh, with, you, they didn't. They really shouldn't have needed to be played in. Uh, Rashford playing with that injury going in and further damaging it, but also a, a host of soft tissue issues um, that various players have suffered and have cost them playing time. So it, they're not a club with their problems to seek, and this is not a manager with his problems to seek at present. Of course, um, Ollie's great friend, Gary Neville. Uh, Gary, we know you're listening. You're still, the invitation is open to come on and join us on the Transfer Under podcast. Uh, said Duncan, in the wake of yesterday's uh, defeat, that it was an unforgivable statistic that Manchester United have the second highest wage bill, this is players, obviously, um, in the world. And to put a squad, put a team out like that and fail so poorly... And obviously, this is a run which is no surprise to anyone. Of course, Gary would never raise that statistic because that is his friend. Um, but clearly, uh, a group of players who are woefully underperforming given how they're valued numerically by Manchester United and generally, of course, in football as well, um, to be in this 
situation. And of course, now adding problems, uh, we've got you know just what, eleven days. We said at the top of the the pod um, until the window closes. Not the ideal thing to be buy, trying to buy goals into your team, having lost Rashford. And I think, in some ways, Martial's missed Duncan when the the, the game was still poised at one zero, and uh, he put a lovely one two. And all I had to do was hit the target from about eight, nine metres out. And he blows it over the bar with power rather than simply placing it in a corner. It just seems to me that this is a team not just lacking in self-belief, but also confidence and, I think, the um, the will to actually improve themselves significantly. Because for all Solskjaer's rhetoric and narrative that, you know, the um, everything's going well. If you see these guys in training and we're changing lots of things, etc. Et the bottom line is the results aren't changing. Yeah, look, Solskjaer went into that game talking about the confidence in the team, and, and they didn't they didn't play awfully in the match. They managed to keep themselves alive until the the very last minute of the game. They they could have got away with a draw, but on the balance of play. Liverpool were clearly the stronger side um, and the the game should have been dead um, for 10-15 minutes into the second half with Mo Salah missing an open goal from what, six yards um, Jordan Henderson hitting the post so it was a good, good save from De Gea um, you know, it wasn't an awful performance I, I think again Solskjaer was that, that back five that he used against Liverpool in the first match and caused Liverpool a lot of problems he caused them tactical problems initially and you, you saw Liverpool having to resort to long balls um, that they don't usually apply You know, they're very good at those diagonal long balls to create chances but you, you were seeing their centre-backs playing it straight up the field at certain points in the game and, and, and trying to work out where the passes were. So tactically, it, it was reasonable. Um, it wasn't a bad setup to begin with. But also, you have the repetition of an error that Manchester United have made again and again this season, which is zonal marking at corner kicks, um, leaving the opposition's most dangerous player um, with one of their smaller players to mark. So Virgil van Dijk was essentially allowed a free run on uh, the, the six-yard box. Bit of clever holding by Joe Gomez to to um, to handicap Harry Maguire and his ability to, to um, try and stop van Dijk getting onto that ball first. But the zonal marking does not work for Manchester United. It doesn't work for this team. They've lost a lot of goals. I think they've lost eight in total to corner kicks so far this season, which... Joint, joint most uh, concessions, Duncan, from corners, yeah, along with Aston yeah. Villa, eight, eight goals. I mean, I, and I've said it many times, and, you know, people can be bored of, but I, I still feel it's true. I've never seen the zone score a goal. And if it did, uh, then it would be top scorer every year um, in the European leagues. So I, I just don't get this the zonal marking thing for me. The smallest player in the Manchester United team runs in with Van Dijk, loses him, obviously, and then two other players fail to intervene again, ends up with a free header. They had Brandon Williams there and, and you know, three players who were nominally a man marking those bigger players at the edge with the rest of their defence in a zonal system, but they, they weren't even doing that effectively. They weren't getting tight to their players. So a, a smaller player can stop a bigger player at 
at a, a set piece because they can, you know, they can knock their body and they can make it difficult for them to jump. And I've I've talked to coaches about this, and they'll they'll say actually you're usually better off going for man-to-man marking if you have smaller players because you can you can use those techniques to to try and stop your opponent um, getting to the ball first. Uh, you put your bigger players or your best defensive players against their most dangerous attacking players and, and sort out that way and, and let them do it one-on-one. The, the, but the key thing is it's not working for Manchester United. They're conceding goals from set pieces. They don't concede a lot of goals as a whole because they play quite defensive football. So the games tend not to have a lot of goals in total because they're they're uh, they're sitting back in, in a lot of these matches and playing on the counter-attack as they did against Liverpool. Strategy has been very effective for them against the bigger teams, but it's not working, it's not being changed. And we see these errors throughout Solskjaer's management of the club. It's not a surprise now that he's not maximising the resource there. Obviously, they don't have the, the same quality of players as Manchester City and Liverpool. Everyone knows that. But the manager's job is to get the best out of what is available to him. And he is on course, having spent a huge amount of money on the defence, having the most expensive defence in the Premier League in terms of transfer-free commitments, having a goalkeeper who's the best-paid player in the Premier League. He's on course for the worst Manchester United Premier League season ever. And I, I believe Gary Neville in that... Um, uh, attack on where Manchester United are and was recommending that the club needs best-of-class operators from top to bottom. I I don't disagree with them there. And they are very far from having best-of-class operators from top to bottom. But what you can absolutely say without a shadow of a doubt is they do not have best-of-class operator as manager. And it is costing them. What do they do now? Do they, do they change their stance on Bruno Fernandes? What we saw at the weekend was a strong brief from the club that um, they would not pay more than €50 million Euros for Bruno Fernandes. Their argument was that Sporting were in discussions with Tottenham over a €45 million deal in the summer. And if they were prepared to talk to Tottenham about €45 million, then they should be prepared to do it for €50 million, uh, in this window. Sporting are adamant that they will not sell for 50 million. Um, multiple people, senior people at the club, saying there is no way we do that deal for 50 million euros. The uh, United have offered a bonus on top of the 50 million, but one that, if United think it's going to be achieved, then really they should be paying more for Bruno Fernandes in the first place because it's a bonus that they will pay an extra 10 million if Bruno Fernandes wins the Ballon d'Or or UEFA's best player of the year during his time at the club. If they they seriously consider Bruno Fernandes a player who will become a Ballon d'Or winner, then they must realise that £50 is a bargain price. And they are being told this. They're being told that you have the opportunity to sign Fernandes in this window because other big clubs who are interested in buying him can't do it now because they have financial fair play issues for this season. If you wait in the summer, you will see one of those um, other clubs who have already expressed an interest in signing the player coming in and negotiating for him. And Sporting will do the deal for their asking price, 
which they, they want a deal they can present to the fans of around 75 million euros. So with perhaps with players going the other way, as they tried to do with Manchester United, those players to refuse, perhaps with achievable bonuses. Um, so this is the opportunity to do it. But it looks like Manchester United are going to remain insistent that it, they will not spend more than 50 million. Why? My information is that Bruno Fernandes' agent and brother-in-law, um, in the summer, when he talked to Tottenham Hotspur and when he was talking to other clubs, and also now talking to Manchester United, has let those clubs know that his information is that Sporting would sell for 50 million, that an offer of 50 million would be enough to get this deal done. So Manchester United have been convinced, it seems, by Miguel Pino telling them 50 million will do it and, and are therefore not prepared to compromise. And people have been trying to uh, mediate and say, look, change the bonus structure, um, make the goals achievable, make them dependent on scoring goals at Manchester United or making assists, make it something that Sporting can see that they'll actually get the money and they will do the deal. And United, I'm told, are adamant they won't go above 50. Perhaps the strategy is, and the, and the calculation is, that they think Sporting will concede by the end of the window and they'll be able to do the deal at the 50 million. But Sporting's point, and they couldn't be stronger about this, is we won't sell at that price. I think it can be done at 60 million plus bonuses. I think if, if Manchester United increase their offer by just 10 million on the guaranteed level, they will get this through. But we're going to have, what, 11 days, I think you said it was, in which we see whether this happens or not. Bruno Fernandes wants to leave. He played reluctantly uh, for Sporting at the weekend. He's agreed personal terms with Manchester United. He wants to go to the Premier League, but he's been told also by the club president, I will not let you leave from this price. It's an embarrassing price for me to sell. I'd rather wait and take a risk in the summer than sell to Manchester United at this price. So that's one issue for them to resolve. The other is, do they go and uh, aggressively attack the market for a centre-forward? And you have Solskjaer talking about doing a loan deal and a temporary solution. Look, we know that Manchester United need more than that. We, we know that their attack is one-dimensional and dependent on pace. They have to add a, a, a striker who's comfortable with his back to goals, a striker who's, who's capable of uh, attacking aerial balls. Um, they've been looking at players of that type in Haaland and Dembele. The question is, are they ready to take that you know, January hit of paying more than they probably would have in other circumstances to buy a player to get him in now to solve a problem for Solskjaer and give the guy a better chance of achieving the Champions League qualification that both he and the club badly need? Duncan, I've got to introduce a phrase here that we don't normally... Um, use um, outside of the pitch, and that's football intelligence. And I say that because um, it is our information that the sporting director of Lille, formerly of Monaco, Luis Campos, who is responsible for uh, the recruitment and sales of, uh, under incredible profit, of the likes of Kylian Mbappe, Bernardo Silva, Nicola Pepe from Lille, where, he currently, where um, Campos currently works, um, has been offered again to Manchester United. Now, you reported first in the podcast some time ago that Campos, who knows Jose Mourinho very well, was Mourinho's first choice to become sport director at Old Trafford. Uh, that was an idea that was rejected 
um, by Ed Woodward and uh, the um, various um, people who make decisions at Manchester United. Now, this has become more of a realistic proposition, I think, now, because at the time, uh, Woodward believed that employing Campos would increase Mourinho's power base with regards to recruitment of players, something which, of course, he and the Glazers didn't want uh, to be the case. Now, I say football intelligence because it's my um, experience and also, uh, I think, uh, reasonably my interpretation that if someone like Campos, who's a football man, who understands football people, was in the position to uh, speak to and negotiate with Sporting Lisbon about Bruno Fernandes, then they might find a solution more quickly and more efficiently than the way that Manchester United are currently going about it by simply saying it's 50 million or nothing. Um, do you think that would be a reasonable point to make and something which United really do now have to seriously consider putting into action? Otherwise, their transfer business is going to you know, basically come round and round and round in circles uh, and, and hit the same obstacles as they've been doing for the last four or five years. Yes, I think football intelligence is a very good way of putting it. I think in, in the circumstance of the Bruno Fernandes deal, which is very complex, which, where the agent, uh, I'm told, stands to benefit if, if certain offers are made to sporting and, uh, and it's been suggested to me as working to get that written offer in this deal, um, one which wouldn't necessarily be accepted by sporting, but would, um, would benefit him in some fashion. When you have a deal of this complexity, you need people who know the market and are able to find out what's actually going on uh, and assess why the situation has got to, to where it has and how it can be resolved. And obviously someone with the experience of Lewis Campus, not only in sourcing players, but in doing deals, um, in contracting players and, and tying players like Kylian Mbappe down um, ahead of him becoming the most expensive teenager in the history of the game when they when uh, Monaco sold him to uh, PSG for 180 million euros, would be aware of how to operate in this market. Manchester United have Ed Woodward and Matt Judge, who has come to increasing prominence in the, in the last few days in, a, in an interesting fashion, suddenly seeing pictures of Matt Judge on the, on the back pages of uh, national newspapers when pretty much he'd been an anonymous figure in the past, which is interesting in itself. Neither of those men had any experience of doing football deals before they were employed by Manchester United. They are bankers and accountants who are clearly um, were very good at their previous jobs and achieved um, these positions at Manchester United on the basis of, of the services rendered to Glazers uh, in the takeover. But do they have the football intelligence to work out what's happening in, the, in these deals and achieve the best in transfers. Well, the history of Manchester United during the period in which uh, David Gill has left the club uh, and Sir Alex Ferguson have left the club and Ed Woodward has been the ultimate responsibility for um, transfer activity and, and talked on several occasions about his successes in the market and what he intended to achieve and how Manchester United could do things that other clubs couldn't even dream of. You have to look at their track record and say they have done very badly in the negotiation of transfers and the identification of talent and in the recruitment of talent. 
So they clearly have a problem there. Uh, a sports director, a good sports director, is an obvious, at least partial, solution to that problem. The club briefed last summer that they intended to hire and, and put a, a sports director in place. Nothing was done during the transfer window. Um, Ed Woodward remained the man who was the front person when it came to negotiating deals, um, had uh, the right to say, we do this deal or not, once it was signed off by the Glazer family. But the, the, the most senior executive in the football club when it came, came to doing transfer deals. Um, you're right, Luis Campos was proposed to Woodward when um, he was uh, talking about bringing a sports director in. He was Josie Mourinho's recommendation for the role. Mourinho was obviously sceptical about a sports director coming in if it wasn't someone he trusted and felt he could work with. And he proposed someone who, as you say, has a fantastic track record in the transfer market in football in general. Woodward was not interested. There was no conversation, I'm told, with Lewis Campos. He was not interviewed, no discussion. And the conclusion of Mourinho and um, Campos was that Woodward's um, reluctance was because he didn't want someone he felt uh, would, would work for Mourinho rather than for him. Um, I, I believe they would have an opportunity again. I believe that um, were Manchester United to contact Luis Campos and ask him to interview or discuss the possibility of, of uh, becoming their sports director, he would be interested in that role, at least interested in having that conversation to see if it was an environment where he could work successfully. And remember, this is a man who was targeted by Roma in the summer um, and offered the Roma job and decided on, after having extensive conversations with the club that it was the wrong place to go because the club was too complicated, didn't have the financial resource to to solve its problems and, and had a big uh, issue with its ownership, which has turned out to be a correct judgment because Roma look like they're going to change hands um, very soon. And, uh, and I think that gives you a sense of where campus would be in terms of uh, making his assessment about whether the job was in his interest and it was somewhere he could, he could achieve and improve things. But my understanding is he's interested in working in the Premier League. He'd be interested in talking to Manchester United. But there has been no direct contact between Ed Woodward and Lewis Campus at this stage. So, Duncan, I, I mean, my um, sort of view on this is that Campos is someone who knows the market. He knows uh, talent. And he knows the status of players as well. If I were Ole Gunnar Solskjaer right now, I'd be, you know, chapping on his door saying, find me a solution for my striker problem. Find me a solution to this deadlock with Bruno Fernandes. Because, you know, if I'm going to have any chance whatsoever of um, taking a shot at Champions League qualification through the Premier League, then I need to solve these problems. And I need players to come in who will perform for the next five months. Otherwise... Uh, we're going to find ourselves in Groundhog Day with regards to Europa League football, etc., etc. Um, what he's not going to get from Ed Woodward and Matt Judge and anyone else is that knowledge, that experience, and those potential solutions. We keep hearing Solskjaer say the right things about um, structure and cultural reboot and whatever with regards to buying in young players. And in fact, Duncan, you did break the story uh, last week in the podcast about 
uh, a certain young Birmingham City player who United have made uh, a, a very, very substantial offer for. Um, but is he? he's obviously he's in demand because I think you've got information regarding another club who are interested in Jude Bellingham. Yeah, there's a lot of interest in Jude Bellingham. He's, he's being scouted um, basically across Europe uh, as uh, a, a serious talent. Obviously, we've seen the English market um, being... Uh, monitored by clubs like Borussia Dortmund um, for uh, these young teenagers from the England youth international teams that have been so successful to try and sign them up while they're cheap, take them over to foreign leagues, which some of the players have been prepared to do and build them into highly valued players, such the most prominent example being Jadon Sancho, who we expect to see move to England, if not in this window, with Chelsea very keen on taking him. Manchester United also have an interest, um, certainly in the summer, uh, and Borussia Dortmund uh, pricing Sancho at 120 million euros already. Dortmund are one of the clubs who have been scouting Bellingham for Birmingham City. He's been playing uh, the majority of their championship matches um, in a range of midfield positions, played all across the midfield, has even operated as an auxiliary forward um, this season. Um, I, I've talked to quite a few people whose job it is to secure the best talents, and I've had a couple of them come back saying this the kid is exceptional. And uh, certainly one of them saying that, that, that they felt the £25 million that Manchester United have offered Birmingham City for him was a reasonable valuation for a young English player of his abilities. Um, they have competition from Arsenal. Now, I wouldn't expect Arsenal to be able to spend that money now, but I think Birmingham City's stance on this is one where Arsenal might potentially be able to structure a deal in that Birmingham City are, I'm told, ready to sell at that price or a, a, a price above it. Um, but they want to retain the player for the next 18 months. So they're, they're looking at a, a team who will buy and allow them to keep Bellingham in their squad um, and guarantee them a substantial transfer down the line. And that's something that may appeal to Bellingham himself, may appeal to his father. As we said on the, the podcast on Friday, they, they um, are presenting themselves as being very astute in their assessment of, of the development path of the player and are concerned that were he to go to the, the wrong um, wealthy club at the wrong time, his he would lose his opportunity to play first-team football and uh, his path into achieving the most out of his talent would, could be restricted by that. So it's possible that the player himself would be keen to remain at Birmingham City while committing to a club. But again, I, I think no guarantee that Manchester United will be able to persuade the player that it's the best place for him to go. But certainly something that, that's going to be an important discussion over the next couple of weeks to see if someone can agree that transfer fee with Birmingham and convince the player that, um, that they're the, the, the right um, next stage for him to take, whether that be immediately. Um, and you could see Manchester United wanting the player immediately because Solskjaer has no um, qualms about putting uh, young players into his first team and it, and it fits this cultural reboot strategy that, um, that Ed Woodward has made such a big thing out of. Um, but uh, there are some important elements here and a lot of competition for this player and, and maybe 
uh, as you say, some football intelligence will be required um, to get that deal over the line as well. Duncan, when I have conversations with um, club chief executives, heads of recruitment, even coaches, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, both ahead of the January window and, and indeed uh, in the last uh, two or three weeks, um, always, always, it's a depressingly familiar message. I say, what do you need more than anything else? And they say, goals. I need goals. Please, please, please bring me goals. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know what, that is like, saying, oh, I want to turn, you know, coal into diamonds or gold because no one sells goals in January, especially if they're involved in either a survival battle or indeed a competition for Champions League place or, or of course, titles themselves. Um, but we have a significant situation now in the Premier League where three of the big six are now looking for a striker, Spurs, Manchester United and Chelsea are all looking for a striker who can give them goals. We've also got um, uh, clubs slightly lower down the table, obviously, in Newcastle United and Aston Villa. We've got uh, Crystal Palace, who've obviously recruited Schenk Tosun on loan from Everton, but are still looking for another striker as well. It's just an incredible kind of, like, you know, I don't know, conundrum that clubs seem to get themselves into. Uh, I'm not saying, obviously, that um, in the case of Spurs and uh, Manchester United, uh, they didn't realise or didn't legislate for the fact that Kane and Rashford would get injured and would be out for a substantial amount of time. So I suppose we can forgive them. But um, interestingly, this morning, Edinson Cavani handed a transfer request at Paris Saint-Germain. He's out of contract at the end of this season. I think his preferred destination is Atletico Madrid, and certainly they've been involved in talks for at least three weeks with regards to trying to recruit him now. Um, but PSG are saying, well, he's out of contract in, uh, in June 30th. So they're trying to now sell the player for around 20 million euros, I'm told. Um, update our um, listeners who are fans of Tottenham Hotspur and uh, their search for a striker. And that is that Daniel Levy is determined to do a uh, wait-and-see deal for any striker coming in. And by that, I mean he would rather take a player on loan, uh, possibly with an obligation to buy, plus you know, with a fee uh, already established, and uh, the Polish internationals, Piatek at AC Milan, continues to be their primary focus with regards to um, filling in for Harry Kane in what is a very difficult uh, period for the club, obviously, without their club captain and best striker, that's for sure. What seems strange, though, Duncan, is, uh, again, you know, we have this situation perennially occurring where clubs don't seem to be prepared for what may or may not happen. As I said, you can't legislate for injuries, but at the same time, Spurs have been operating without a direct replacement for Kane for some time now. Um, Rashford would be another example of a player who can't be replaced for Manchester United. And Chelsea have been told by Frank Lampard, uh, well in, in advance of this particular window, that he needs backup for Tammy Abraham, who he fears, playing every game, will either get injured or will burn out to a degree, obviously it's not going to be um, as serious uh, as that may sound given his age, etc, etc. But we are in a situation where um, anyone who might be putting the ball in the back of the net has suddenly become a very, very valuable um, target or asset where, with regards to moving in this window. 
Yes. Uh, look, as you say, it's a perennial problem. And, and I was talking to someone in recruitment at a Premier League club um, last week discussing the difficulties of finding a striker in, in any window, but in particular the January window. And he, he said, well, look, most clubs these days play with one centre forward. That's the, the standard formation now. Very few are actually playing two um, central strikers, which means that they have one person playing football regularly and another guy in the bench. And, um, and they tend not to have uh, too many uh, additional options in the club. So you're, you're looking at trying to extract um, a bench player who's still important to that team. Uh, the, their first choice player, if you think you you can manage to do that, which would be the Moussa Dembele situation. And actually, there aren't many numbers to look for because most of the clubs are only playing one centre forward. So it's harder to recruit just in in, in that sense of, of available numbers than it is in any other position on the field. Um, you're right. A lot of this comes down to bad structuring of the squad. So... Tottenham are in a position where they're trying to get a, and I'm told it is still a, a loan with an option to buy, not um, Levy very reluctant to put any guaranteed money down on the table for a purchase of a of a new striker. They're in that situation um, because they had built a squad where they only had Harry Kane and no backup. Manchester United are in a situation where they only have strikers of a certain type Rashford, Martial and Mason Greenwood, whose development has been excellent this season and perhaps ahead of what a lot of people expected. So he has given them another option there. But they didn't have they they were not they were short on numbers for the, the forward system they play, um, because Rashford is a wide player for them rather than the central player normally, and short on uh, on variations. So yes, they they built these problems a long time ago, going into the summer, and now the problems are, are coming home to roost for the clubs because of injuries um, uh, caused by playing players uh, when they perhaps shouldn't have been in the, in the game because they were carrying an injury, um, or caused by um, that heavy winter schedule uh, that results in more soft tissue injuries amongst Premier League players than, than anything else. I think in that case, Duncan, we will expect to see a flurry um, of activity, not necessarily concluded deals, but um, I suspect very much that in the next um, few days, we'll see a lot of players linked to said clubs that we've mentioned with regards to strikers. Um, I seem to remember historically, uh, well, I do remember historically, a sort of uh, very, very um, interesting and effective move when um, Sir Alex Ferguson brought Henrik Larsson on loan in the January window uh, to Manchester United. And although he didn't score a huge amount of goals, Larson, of course, was a very, very um, uh, creative player in terms of chances uh, for other teammates, etc., and um, expected goals and, and things like that. So um, there might be something left field, um, where Rashford, of course, does play in the left of the field, um, to uh, uh, bolster Manchester United's squad going forward. 
This is Monday's Transfer Window podcast. Uh, we have, of course, brought you lots of news today, uh, updates, mostly on Manchester United, but I think you'll all understand why that's the case, given the, the weekend's um, result, as well as the ongoing saga of Bruno Fernandes, Brashford, etc. Uh, if you like what you hear, thousands of you do, please log on to iTunes, give us a five-star review, and we can expand the community. As always on a Monday, we will finish off with our Heroes and Villains segment. Uh, Duncan, I'm going to ask you, please, to name your villain uh, of the weekend. Um, I've got a feeling I might know maybe where you're going with this, but please uh, do surprise us. (laughs) Villain of the weekend, uh, a referee who got a very high-profile match, um, probably one of the biggest matches of his his career, uh, Manchester United-Liverpool, Craig Pawson, and made what I, I cannot understand as a, a decision um, to not give a foul for Virgil van Dijk's challenge um, on David De Gea, um, which resulted in Liverpool scoring another goal and which he required VAR um, to save him from. Um, I think one of the easiest VAR decisions we've seen because you watch the uh, footage of what happened and van Dijk goes up to challenge for the high ball. He's attempting to win the header. Nothing wrong with that. He has every right to attempt to win the header, but he doesn't win the header. Um, De Gea goes up for the same high ball. He gets his hands to it. As he gets his hands to it, Van Dijk, who is 1 meter 93 and over 90 kilos, goes into De Gea's body um, at pace. Um, unsurprisingly, De Gea drops the ball. Um, I I. I don't think many goalkeepers actually would hold the ball in those circumstances. It's difficult to hold a ball when you've just taken it at the peak of your jump and someone of that size uh, collides into you going in the opposite direction. And Pawson somehow managed not to see a foul there. And yeah, I've heard arguments that um, attackers should be allowed to challenge goalkeepers in these situations. But let's let's turn that into a... Uh, challenge for a ball on the ground. Van Dijk goes in, for example, against Anthony Martial in the same way. Tries to win the ball, fails to win it. Martial gets his boot to it, and Van Dijk's momentum takes him through Martial, um, resulting in Martial losing possession. That would be given an, a, a, as a foul every time, or should be given as a foul every time, because the players, the, the attacker has failed to touch the ball, and he stops the, his opponent from playing the ball in a fair fashion. So how anyone can argue that that should not have been a foul and that Pawson was correct in the decision, I just don't understand. And I would say our friend Rafi Onigstein uh, commenting after the match, and he said 99 times out of 100 outside England, that would be given as a foul and no one would ever question it. Well, I know you'd all agree with me on this, um, our beloved listeners. We're going to put Duncan in a room with both Roy Keane and Graham Zinnis, where you can argue that one out with them. Um, both, I think you'll agree, uh, old-school, X-rated footballers known for their tough tackling and now tough talking. Uh, my hero of the last few days also features a goalkeeper, and it's for purely joyous reasons, uh, and also uh, for skill Um, which he displayed uh, in the heat of one of the biggest battles, of course, of the season. And that was at Anfield yesterday. And, of course, it's Alison Becker, who provided a wonderful pass on the left flank inside channel to uh, Mo Salah for the goal in added time, which uh, put the icing on the cake of Liverpool's victory over their old rivals, Manchester United. 
Um, I commend him for his quick thinking, for his accuracy, for his talent in actually being able to execute the pass as a goalkeeper, but most of all, for the 20-metre power slide, where he arrived to celebrate with Salah. Absolutely sensational stuff. If you haven't seen it, I'm sure most of you have, please Google it. Get on there, have a look, and celebrate with Alison Becker. Never mind Mo Salah's finish. Alison Becker, he's the hero. Good choice, Ian. Good choice, Ian. That was a great, <laughs> great bit of football and a, and a great bit of finishing from Mo Salah after it was. It was yeah, and you know what? I, I as well, Duncan. I'm gonna. I, I criticised Daniel James earlier in the pod um, for lack of um, marking, but he sprinted to try and catch Salah. He just didn't have the upper body strength to, you know, just dunk, dump him off the ball, which was a shame because. Uh, his effort to try and get back was probably as much as any um, Manchester player put in to defend in the entire game. So uh, I'm going to have a quick sympathetic mention to uh, Dan James for the fact that he, at least he was trying uh, right up to that last minute and keep the game alive for United. Now, if you want to continue the debate, and we know that all of you do because our social media channels are chocker with questions and with comments and with analysis, which, of course, you know we like to engage with you as well. Then uh, we have three uh, who, uh, channels, which are at Transfer Podcast. That, of course, is our Twitter handle. It's also on Instagram and on Facebook. Duncan Castles on Instagram is at Duncan.Castles. Uh, he's on Twitter at Duncan Castles. I'm on Twitter at GarboSJ. Please get in touch with us. Uh, let us know what you think of today's pod. Let us know what you think about anything which is going on in the next 40 hours, because that's when we'll be back on Wednesday with your questions answered and, of course, with all the latest updates on this transfer window, at which point it will be nine days down and counting until the close of this particular window. So get in touch. Let us know your questions. Uh, we'll be tweeting them out as well for, uh, to let you um, give us the opportunity to uh, take a look at what's best, what's most uh, contextual and, of course, keep you on the cusp of all the news that's going on. For now, we shall see you through the transfer window Wednesday. Thanks for listening.